Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 4, verses 1 through 10. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Amen. Thank you, Kelly. And good morning and welcome once again to Redeemer LSQ, those online and in person. Uh, A special welcome if you're new. We have a lot of new folks in the city and our church. I'm glad that you're here. We hope that you can plug in. A few months ago, the New Yorker magazine uh, ran an article with a title like this. It says this, The Case Against the Trauma Plot. And what the article does is it goes on to argue that film and television right now is overusing trauma as the grounds from whence all evil comes from. It cites uh, Netflix's new reboot of Anne of Green Gables where Anne has a history of abuse. And it cites Macbeth, where the new version of Macbeth, he's got a devastating background and story. It almost seems like these days, every single villain has the root of their evil in trauma. Quick caveat, trauma is real. Redeemer started a counseling center. Because trauma is real, we just prayed about the trauma that has been done to those who have been sex trafficked. That is real. And this article is not saying it isn't real. What it is saying, though, is that when you root all evil in trauma, the totalizing identity of it flattens aspects of who we are. Because when everything's trauma, then it, 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 what happens is, is you overly psychologize misbehavior. So if you uh, go to the show Ted Lasso, right? Ted Lasso, 
his childhood trauma has led to his issues. And even the villain in Ted Lasso, Nate, it's his family trauma. But because of this, what the article points out is that it, because their life is just mere coping mechanisms, it cheapens the story overall, and it operates as the moral authority by which we read everything through. And therefore, what, what's happening in our lives is it distorts the full nature of our persona because it, at the end of the day, you've lost agency. You're just the product of a bunch of causes and effects against you. And so, of course, if evil is not just the result of only trauma, it's not the full explanation, then the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is the world the way that it is? And our modern world has tried to come up with different answers to this. For instance, the past hundred years have said the problem is education. We need, to, we need to educate people more. Of course, the problem with that is the 20th century, you had the most people in the world that can read. You have the most educated populace ever. And what we did with that education is we designed ways to kill each other better. And so you have in the 20th century more deaths caused by other humans towards humans than the 19th centuries before that. Other people say, okay, well, here's the problem. The problem is, uh, is we don't have enough wealth. If we just created enough wealth in our, in our world... People could buy what they want, they can have what they want, and everybody would be happy. And we have, the problem is, we actually are the wealthiest worldwide, GDP, than we've ever been ever. And that hasn't fixed our problems. And so what's interesting right now is we're at a crossroads culturally here in New York, in the West, because the old solutions that have been given to us to say this is what's going to fix things haven't worked out. And so what you're seeing culturally and politically is fractured identities where we're all sort of saying, this is the new version of reality. And because they're competing, there's no one view. We're all a little discombobulated by that. We're like, I, I, we're, we're, we're frustrated by that. And I would argue before we can get to the solution, we have to get down to what the problem really is. And so that's what we've been looking at the past couple of weeks. We've been in the book of Genesis trying to see what it might say to us about the questions our culture is asking. And today... We get, in the book of Genesis, the first major case study of a problem between two individuals, between Cain and Abel. And so our job here is to look at how sin operates in a live, real context to then potentially see what the problem might really be. So today, let's look at three things, three ways that sin operates, the ubiquity of sin, the ability of sin, and then the debility of sin. The ubiquity, the the ever-presence of it the uh, um, ability or abilities of sin, but then also the debility of it. So first, let's look at the ubiquity of sin. Where do we see that? Go to our text, and right away, in verse 5, after they've offered their sacrifices, the, the, uh, their offering, it says here, Cain is angry. Now, in our English, angry is anger, but in Hebrew, it doesn't say quite that. It says it's a little more emphatic. It says, Anger burned to Cain exceedingly. And the reason we have to ask ourselves that is, okay, what's going on there? Why? Clearly, he feels that God's being unfair here. Why is God accepting Abel's offering and not my offering? And what happened here is Abel was a shepherd. He brought his fat uh, portions from his flock. And Cain brought his fruit portions. And some people have thought, well, because God likes you know, animals more than fruit. And then we go, wait a second, he made both. So that that can't be that. If you go to the text, the only clue given here from the text 
Why God accepts Abel's offering, not Cain, it says here is that Abel offers the first uh, fruits. So it says here, in the course of time, Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Whereas Cain does not do that. Why not? Well, Abel, because he gives the first fruits, what does that mean? It means that before he considers his own needs, before he considers his own quota, what he needs to produce, before anything else, he says, God, I want to give this to you. In other words, it was something he wanted to get, do, not something he had to do. In contrast, Cain kept the prized fruits for himself. He offered fruit. So this is, like, this is where it gets a little muddied. He actually said, well, I should give God something. So he does. It's kind of like the person who's like, you know, well, okay, I go to church. I'm a good person. I know I need to offer God something. So he does. But when he does so, it's not necessarily what, uh, it, it indicates the motivation of his heart. He does it not because he wants to. He feels like he has to. This is actually given, we're given, we're given a little bit more about this in uh, Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, where traditionally we looked at just the younger son being the prodigal. But the older son, who's the one who doesn't come into the party? It's the older son. Why doesn't he come in? It's because he says, it's not fair. Very similar to Cain. This is not fair. I've done my whole life. I've given everything to you. I've given my fruit, and now you owe me. See, on the surface, the older son is the good son. Cain actually did give an offering. You know, it's better than most people, right? And yet, what Cain is doing, and what really the, the elder son was doing as well, on the surface, it looks great. But underneath it, the motivation was corrupt. It was, I prize me over thee. It was, it's the motivation of saying, I need to look out for number one. I need to focus on self. And here's the problem. with In our modern world, we've so normalized this. What we say to ourselves is, well, of course we have to think about ourselves. There's no, it, I, I am thinking about myself because I am a self. I think, therefore, I am. A little bit of Descartes. So there's no way for us not to think this way. And so I would argue the ubiquity of sin is such that we don't even know that what is sin and what's not. If you're made in God's image and God is three persons, and therefore to be actually fully human, you need to actually be in community as God is community, then to make decisions on self is actually not living inside of our nature. But we don't even think that way. We don't even see that. Because we think sin is just a concept or a thought. But go back to how God defines it. Look in our text. When one of the most provocative statements, I think, in the entire Bible, God, in verse 7, defines sin not as a thought, not as just an action, but as a power, as something that, that, uh, uh, that moves that desires you, that's active, not passive, not static. And that means whatever sin is, it is not just something that uh, you can theorize. It, it actually moves beyond you. So let me give you an example. Imagine you get married, uh, and you're newlywed, you're in marriage. I bet you very few people, when they first get married, they, they can't even fathom ever saying to their spouse, I hate you. And I never want to see you again. I never want to be around you again. But five years later in marriage, there might be a moment where you feel quite justified, where you say, I hate you, and I never want to see you again. I hate everything about you. And if you do that, guess what would happen? In that moment, when you do that, when you feel like that anger is justified, just like Cain, he felt like 
hey, this is unfair. I'm right to be angry in this moment. What happens? The moment passes and you go, oh no, what did I just say? And you try to apologize. You try to make amends. You, you, you can give reparations. Here's some flowers. Here's a back rub. How can I help? You can try to make up, but you can't put the cat back in the bag. You can't actually put it back because what, what's happened now is what was once not broken is now broken. There's a scene in one of the Harry Potter books where Harry uh, picks up a spell. He doesn't know what it will really do. He, just knows, he knows it'll be bad, and he throws it against his enemy, and it creates these wounds that you can't actually reheal. The, the wounds, every time they try to magically heal the wounds, they open up again. It's kind of like what sin does, that once you do it, 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 it has its own power beyond itself. Go back to our example. Now that you've done it, it's probably, A, easier for you to do it again, because you've felt it, you've, you, you, you've, you've rationalized it. But B, go into now the other person. They, they now, what are they going to do with that? They might, it might trigger self-pity. It might trigger anger. It might trigger a whole set of chain reactions of what it does in their lives and then how it affects them and moves out. And so what is that? Sin, in that moment, is an active agent. And this is where the concept of trauma, this is actually what trauma gets right. PTSD is real because when that experience gets in you, it transforms and moves in you, and you cannot be an unchanged person now. It has a lasting effect. That nature, your nature, is different. And this is why John Owen says, kill sin before it kills you, which I think in some ways sounds very similar to what God's saying to to Cain here. Because if you don't master it, right here where it says, if you don't master it, it's going to master you. It's not only gets in you and keeps affecting you, it gets out of you and affects others. And what, it's, what, what God's saying here is it's coming after you, Cain, and it's coming after all of us. And if we don't realize this, if we don't actually come up with the concept of a ubiquitous sin that's ever-present, that's always around, what's going to happen is, and I think this is, we've seen this culturally, is we're going to constantly be surprised. This is why it's so fascinating. People say, when you ask an average person on the street, are people essentially good or essentially bad? Most people will say today, people are essentially good. And then, what's going, then what happens is they're full of bewilderment by how good people can do bad things. Because an overly simplistic view of sin. Or an overly simplistic, as we already mentioned, view of the solutions. Well, it's just education, or if we just put money, if we just focus on people on happiness. By the way, I think those are important. But they, they're so simplistic because when you actually achieve them, they don't actually work. And so what's happening there is we're not really seeing sin for what it is. We're not actually able to see it. And so I want to ask you before we move on, do you see it? How will we see it? Let's, At Redeemer let's get to Lincoln our second Square, point. we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Or the abilities of sin. My kids and I, we have this um, debate sometimes 
about what superpower would you like to have? If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you have? And I've made the argument that telekinesis is the best. I think telekinesis is the best because what you can do with telekinesis is you can read other people's minds, you can affect their minds, you can, you can, um, you can fly because you can move yourself, you can move other objects, you can kind of do everything. It's the best. I think I've made a good, a good argument. Um, sin has super abilities too. Sin has superpowers, and I think there's three that we're given right here. Ability number one, the superpower to hide. Go back to verse 7. When God brings up sin, how does he describe it? He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It's one of the most vivid images you could possibly paint right here. That sin is crouching. The word crouch is, is a Hebrew word often used about for a wild beast, kind of lurking, hiding in the bush or behind the door. You can't quite see it, but it's there, and it's dangerous. It's low to the ground. It's about to pounce on you. It's also interesting, you can't tell this from the English, but in the, in the Hebrew, the word for sin actually has a feminine ending, but the word for crouch has a masculine ending. And that's weird because usually the modifier is usually the same uh, case in sex, but because it's different, there's an extra pronoun here, which gives it this sort of mysterious connotation that sin is a concrete uh, croucher. The, the extra pronoun's almost as if it's kind of saying, beware. It's going to get you. Watch out. Why? Because sin has this unique ability to not look like sin in your life. We, 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 I don't walk around thinking that. Most sin in your life right now, you and I don't even recognize as sin. And this is what's so scary about it. That means that potentially the biggest problem that you might have right now, you don't even know it's a problem. That the sin that's killing you most right now is the one that you're least aware of. That what's destroying your life right now, you don't even know it's destroying your life because it's crouching. Because it's hiding. I find it quite interesting that we are actually bothered people. I'm bothered by that person's sin over there. How dare they? Your coworker, Or that political party over there. I can't believe those people do that. And when you turn that same sort of razor back to yourself, you know what ends up happening? You go, well, I'm just complicated. <laughs> I'm nuanced. I'm multifaceted. You know, there's, there's, there's different shades here. But them, oh my gosh, oh my goodness, they are what's wrong. See, what's happening in that moment is we, don't, we can't see our own issues because I don't think we know even where to look. And when I think we don't know where to look because one of the greatest tricks the modern world's ever done to us is to try to convince us that actually if you do try to look for your sin, it's actually unhealthy. I've, I've heard this from a lot of people in New York. They say, why do Christians always focus on your issues? You once a week sit in church, and we, had, we just had a time of confession, and you focus on it. That seems so unhealthy. That seems so regressive. That seems like you have a low self-esteem. That's going to lead to depression. Don't do that. I hear that all the time, and I used to try to, like, you know, counter that, that, that uh, line of questioning, but I have a new counter now. I have a new trick. This is what I do now. I go back to them, and I say, you know what? I say, you know who uses language like that? Abusers use language like that. Because you know what abusers do? They, they purposely say, 
Don't focus on what I just did. Don't focus on these issues. Let's just focus somewhere else. Oh my gosh, what's that? That's what abusers do. They, they say, they look over there because it, it allows them to keep abusing. But as we all know, if something is doing injury to us or to others, even if we think it's in small ways, it would be actually wrong not to address the issue. It'd be wrong for us not to actually look at it and shine a light on it. Think about cancer. Do you, if you have cancer in your life, do you say, well, it's kind of small. Let's just not deal with it right now because when it gets bigger, then we'll come back to it. No. If you have cancer, what you're doing is you're going to focus on it. You're going to study it. You're going to look at it. You're going to analyze it. You're going to get scans regularly. You're going to develop a plan to defeat it. You're going to start taking chemotherapy. And when you're taking chemotherapy, what are you doing? You're killing yourself to try to kill it. Because if you don't do that, it's going to, you know, it's going to kill you. You're going to try to kill it before it kills you. And so before we move on, we need to ask ourselves this. Where might you not be paying attention to something in your life where you probably should be? Where, if you can't see it, if it's killing you, you're going, well, you're going right now, Michael, if I can't see it, well, what's, how do I do that? Well, do you put yourself around people who can see it? And do you give them access to speak into your life? Do you, when you hear criticism, let's say 90% of the criticism is wrong, do you accept the 10%? Or maybe it's 99% wrong. Will you even hear the part that actually is true, and do you change your life based off of it? Sin gets you when you don't realize it's actually gotten you. That's ability number one. Ability number two, it can hide, but it can also pretend. There's a supervillain who's able to whisper untruths and turn them into reality. They're, fi- they're fibs, but then they, they, they become real. Sin, therefore, I would argue, doesn't just hide out of sight. Sin can actually hide in plain sight by pretending to be what it's not. Uh, Thomas Brooks has this book called Precious Remedies of Satan's Devi- Against Satan's Devices. And what he points out there is... Often sin poses as a virtue. I don't have a drinking problem. I'm just the life of the party. I don't, I, I'm not vain. I, I just, you know, care about my body and health. No, no, no. I'm, I, I'm not boasting over other people. I just have a high self-esteem. I'm not a coward. I'm just, uh, you know, somebody who is tender-hearted. No, no, no. I, I'm a... Uh, you know, I don't overwork. I'm just determined. Or what's the New Yorker say? Uh, I, we're not rude. We just like to tell the truth. <laughs> Everybody knows that one. See, what is that? What's going on there? I'm not consumeristic. I just like to have stuff. What's going on there? It's taking sin. It's taking the flaw and it's spinning it so that it looks like a virtue. Which makes us all, in a way, master rationalizers. We're so good at this. I'm really good at this. That we pretend our weaknesses are really strengths. We pretend that what we know has that negative, dark underbelly. We, 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 we kind of ignore that one and say, look how great this part is. Where might you be doing that in your life right now? Where might sin be uh, uh, masquerading as virtue? Where might you be hiding it? Not just from, from others. You might be hiding it from yourself. Maybe, this would be an interesting thought study. I just thought of this. 
what if we listed all of our best attributes and then try to ask ourselves what's really the sinful undercurrent of those attributes? That would be interesting. Only if we actively keep our sins in our view, only if we can see them, will they not be able to pounce on us from behind. Ability number two. Last ability. Ability number three. The ability of denial. What's denial? Denial has the ability to alter reality, even if it's just in your own mind. Because what's what's denial? Denial is how addiction works. When you're addicted to something, you're in denial about its power over you. Denial, then, it's where you repress this idea so much that reality bends around it where everybody else sees it, but you can't. Look at our text again. God is pleading with Cain. God is saying, Cain, all these questions, what's going on here? What is, how, what's the first thing that Cain does to respond to God? Verse, this is uh, verse 9. It's almost like it's very cool, calm, and collected. He goes, am I my brother's keeper? That's his answer. Am I my brother's keeper? What's interesting about that phrase is if you just take the, the sheer surface content of it, we're all like, actually, you are kind of your brother's keeper. Kind of everybody is your brother's keeper. See, we understand that, but Cain can't. Cain can't see that. He's so in denial of what's happened, he has to use this as a way to keep it at bay. Where might you and I be denying? Where might you and I be in denial? Where, where has sin so captured us that we can't see reality for what it really is anymore? Because I think these are the three abilities. These are superpowers of sin. It can pretend, it can hide, and it can deny. And because of that, that's why it's ubiquitous. That's why it's everywhere. That's why you don't even know it's where it is. It's why we actually struggle. I struggle every week to try to show you and and tell you this is actually real. That the biggest problem that's killing you is the problem that you don't even know is killing you. And if this is true, then the last question we have here is, what's the solution? Where do we go from here? Last point, sin, sin's debility. If this is the case study, this is the first example that the Bible gives us, then we have to ask ourselves, we need to find what will actually defeat it. And the hint, the hint comes in the very last, for it, in the very last verse. Look what it says. The Lord says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Another one of those provocative statements. Your, blood, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. You know what's interesting? Abel never talks in the entire Bible. He never speaks one word. But his blood does. His blood speaks out. And it's saying this. It's saying this crime needs payment. If you go fast forward just a couple more chapters, Abraham's living in a city. There's sin happening. You know what happens? There's an outcry again. And what happens there? God comes down for that too. It actually happens pretty regularly. Injustice happens. People cry out because that's what happens when there's injustice and God comes down. He comes down and he says, I have to do something about this. Why? Because you can't paper it over. You can't just, when there's a sin, there's a debt. When there's a debt, there's a brokenness. We just talked about how it gets in all things and goes around all places. And if there's that debt, that debt has to be paid. There has to be amends. There has to be reconciliation, restitution, something has to fix it. And God says, I need to do that. But here's what's so fascinating here. 
he doesn't just come down for Abel. He comes down for Cain, too. All the questions that God's asking Cain is really fascinating. Because, by the way, when, when God's asking you questions, he's God. He already knows the answers. He's not asking the questions for himself. He's asking the questions for you. He's trying to get Cain to understand something. What's breathtaking is God cares for the innocent. He cares for the victim. But fascinatingly, he also comes and he's caring for the victimizer. He's caring for Cain too. And it makes it almost seem like God must be stuck here because how can he make amends for Abel's death and yet care for Cain at the same time? How can he possibly keep those things together? How does he, you know, if humans are the ones causing the sin, how does he solve sin without solving and getting rid of humans? We don't find that out until centuries later. Centuries later in the Bible, which we'll see is that when Abel, when he dies, when the blood of the innocent falls to the ground, you know what that, that blood's crying out? It's crying out saying, why does my brother forsake me? Why has he forsaken me? Jesus, centuries, years later, when his blood hits the ground, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abel was innocent and his blood demanded payment, but the second Abel, Jesus, his blood was spilled as payment. How is that possible? This is important. Jesus, when he died, he didn't die as a symbol of his love for you. That would be kind of dumb, right? I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to jump into this river because I love you. That's not it. He saw us drowning in the river from the consequences of our sin. He dives in to save you at the cost of his life. That's why Hebrews 12, 24 says this. That Jesus' sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's the writer saying? He's saying, hey, Abel was innocent. And his blood pleads for the innocent, but Jesus' blood pleads for everybody. The first Abel's blood demands justice. The second Abel's blood accomplishes that justice. And as loud as Abel's blood speaks against the sin done against him, Jesus' blood speaks for the sinners that have operated against him. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon uh, on, on this text, he puts it this way. I'm going to paraphrase it. He says this. He says, what if, what if you and I really knew as loud as our sins speak? See, I, I would argue some of the reasons why we don't want to look at inside and see how it all looks is that shame, the hurt, doing so, we, we do, we're worried what we'll find there. What if as loud as those sins speak, as loud as your shame, as loud as your hurts might be, what if we knew they could not be as loud as Jesus' blood? And what his blood is saying is this, all that I paid for. All that I finished, I accomplished, I did it. And it would be, therefore, God, it would be unjust for you to exact payment from those people because I already paid it. You should not get two payments for the same offense. What if you knew that? What if Jesus wasn't pleading before God saying, hey, God, let, let these people in because, you know, maybe, you know, they'll mess up again. But, you know, maybe, maybe, yes, maybe no. No, Jesus is saying, my blood has already paid. And so justice now requires that you accept them no matter what. And love them no matter what. 
And he did this, he accomplished this before you even were born. He accomplished this before you even knew you needed it. That's what's so powerful here. And if we knew that, if we knew right now that nothing could keep us away from the love of God, that nothing could keep us away from the totalizing identity found in him, and if we knew the world might leave us, if we knew the circumstances could change, if we knew all the things in the world is always shifting and moving, but his love never changes and would never move off of us, I don't care how gray it's going to be out there, it's going to be sunny in your heart. I don't care how bad it gets out there, it doesn't change the stability and foundation that you find here. It's the comfort in the darkest moment. It's the love in even the most unlovely circumstances. I don't care how down you can be and will be. You're going to be up with him. And if we don't just know this in our head, this isn't just a concept that we're talking about on a Sunday morning, but if you knew and experienced this in your life, you, you might be surprised by life, whatever it gives you, but what you might be most surprised about is what you thought mattered now no, it doesn't matter as much because you have him. And what you thought you had to have, now you don't really have to have. And what you thought you needed from people, now you don't need that from them because you have him. Ironically, actually, what you do have now, you can now give more because you have more. What do you have? You have God's holiness. You have the Holy Spirit advocating for you, speaking into your life. You have Jesus' life and death and resurrection as resources to live out in the world over and over and over again. That means whatever is going to happen to you right now can't take away one moment of bliss that you're going to have in the future. And actually, you can partake in that and have that today. What frown can really bring us down? What, what if we sat regularly and said, the sweetest things in life, what could be sweeter than his affection for me? What if we really did that? What could be sweeter than his affection for us? One of my favorite hymns goes like this. Think what spirit dwells in within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? That word repine is, just means, can you really worry? Can you really, really fret knowing the depths of his love for you? Think. He's speaking to his own heart. Speak to yourself and realize that to the degree that we see the resurrection, his resurrection is the beginning of our resurrection, there will be nothing that's more important than this in our life. And it will be the lens by which we can view all of the reality. It would change our lives. It would change how we move into other people's lives. It would change how we handle the lives of others. Last thing to say this is, is, is I, I, if I'm honest, guys, I don't really believe this at, at all times, at all places. And that's why I, 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 I implore, I, I ask you, pray, pray. Lord, I believe, I don't, but I don't really believe. Let our hearts be captured by this grace, undeserved but loved. There and there alone will you be able not just to live, not just thrive, but to be and sit with our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray our hearts will be caught by grace. I pray that this isn't just an idea, but this is a, a reality. What could be sweeter than the sweetness found in your affection for us that's most articulated and found on what you are willing to do 
because you loved us, because you loved us, because you loved us. And if we really knew that we have nothing to be afraid of, that there, would be no, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we would be so free to look at the dark places in our life, we could admit them and start working on them. And surprise, surprise, the things that used to, we thought we needed, we don't need anymore. I pray that we would realize that and that alone will allow us to undeservedly love others because we're so undeservedly loved ourselves. Turn our hearts and minds towards you and all that we do. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.